part of, of the shame that came along with uh, with all of the sexual abuse because part of the sexual abuse was my mom actually sexually abusing me. And so there was a lot of shame around of how I was seeing women and how I was relating to women. And um, and I didn't understand why I was doing, why I was feeling, you know, certain things. So Melissa and, and you were able to really meet me in that place of, of deep despair where um, all I wanted was really just to go to sleep and never wake up. Promiscuity, we need to understand, isn't just a choice to embrace sexual sin. We need to get underneath of the symptom and don't ignore the symptom, but we need to get underneath the symptom, you know, a number of layers down probably. And so there's so much that plays into why we're acting out in sexually compulsive ways or compulsive sinful ways and I think it, we as Christians really do ourselves and others a great disservice when we're not willing to go to those deeper levels with people. To be able just to tell individuals out there in the audience that have deep deep trauma that doing the work Gary like doing the work is actually where uh, where the freedom comes in, and, and that it's scary, and that it's hard. It's so hard, but it is so worth doing the hard work, not alone, but with others. We are so glad that you've tuned in for another episode of the Love and Truth Network podcast. We are grateful for you to join us to hear uh, Becky, my friend Becky, friend of myself, friend of my wife, friend of uh, Jeremiah, who also works for our ministry. And I'm excited for you to be able to hear some of her story and also just the wisdom that flows out of her in the dialogue that we're going to be uh, having today. And this may be a one-part uh, podcast. It may be something that extends into a second podcast. But I am, again, looking forward to you being able to hear from Becky yourself and to just engage in some of the dialogue that we'll be having uh, today and possibly in a future podcast. So Becky, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. Thank you, Gary. I feel honored to uh, be able to, uh, yeah, just uh, spend time with you to share what the Lord has done in my life. And, um, and yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely. Well, we're glad again that you're here. So one of the things that we do, and those that have been listening or watching our podcast for any length of time know that the first thing we do is ask our guests to share a little bit of their own story, how God met them, what they were wrestling with, struggling with, and uh, maybe one primary theme or could be multiple things, but just asking them to share some of how God intersected their life and uh, rescued them and what life looks like on the other side of saying yes to Jesus. Yes, of course. Um, so Gary, I, um, <clears throat> I'm first generation here. My family is from Mexico and um, and so my mom was the oldest of uh, six children. And so she, um, grandma and grandpa, you know, just very poor uh, in Mexico. So she was the one that kind of took one of the parent roles. Um, so a lot of responsibility. Um, when they came here, uh, my mom, again, was the one that kind of went out, started working, helping the family out. She met my dad, got married, had myself and my sister uh, but by the time I was born, they had already divorced. And so um, at that time, it seemed like there was just a lot. My mom was just going through a lot. Um, I mean, now I reflect on it and I just wonder um, just all that responsibility and and just um, just some of the, um, yeah, the, the culture stuff around uh, misogyny, um, how that might have affected her. Um, but yeah, by the time, you know, I'm born, you know, her and dad are divorced. And, um, and so she starts kind of looking for love in all the wrong places. And, um, mm -hmm. and so we're kind of, you know, going along for the ride and she's not able to keep a job. She's has, you know, boyfriends in and out. And, um, it, it started, I think for me, it started about at five, 
And I, I have a sense even earlier, just kind of that, that emptiness, that darkness that was already, Mm -hmm. um, happening. Um, and so, uh, there was just, yeah, my mom just had us in situations that were not healthy and not helpful. Um, and, um, by five, uh, I had, she had started taking us to visit my dad. And so that's where some of the, um, the, some of the abuse started happening. Um, and then that Mm kind of just continued on to specific, uh, boyfriends that she, that she had. And so, um, yeah, throughout from like the age of five to, I would say about 13, um, there was, uh, you know, sexual abuse. There was, I experienced, uh, you know, rape and, um, uh, trafficking. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. a lot of times I, I don't recall some of those memories just because there was also like substance, um, involved in, in the, in the abuse. Um, and, and so this was kind of this ongoing. And so whatever, it seemed like whatever, you know, the intention that the Lord had for my life, it was just stripped away little by little by little by little by little. And, um, and, you know, by 13, like I, like there was, there was nothing internally, like it was just kind of the shell, right? I, I'm looking to others to tell me who I am because I have no idea who I am. Um, my value comes right. from what I can do and offer sexually, um, to others. And, um, and the only thing I think, Gary, that kept me going during that time is the fact that my grandmother was a home base in a sense. And so grandma, um, was Catholic and, um, and she was devoted to praying. And so when my sister and I would come to live with her, um, you know, she, she, she always had the Bible out. She was always praying. She was always interceding. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think she was not that I think I know she was the first representation of Jesus in my life. Super broken. Grandma's super broken, right? But but she was like just just a like just enough of a taste of who Jesus mm-hmm. was that somehow I was able to kind of keep going. Um and so um yeah, I at 13 um you know, I'm, I'm back living with my grandmother, uh, by 15, my mom's diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, you know, her lifestyle wasn't really much any different. She was caught up in, in, you know, alcoholism and, and drugs. And, um, and by 16, she, she died, she died of breast cancer. Mm. And, uh, and basically she left, it, it feels like she left all of that darkness, all of that sin and all of that brokenness. It's kind of like she just said, like, here you go. And now you, you deal with it. And I'm kind of out of here. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now mm-hmm. from the age of 16 to, to now, like that's, that's really been the journey for me of trying to walk through, um, so much of, of that abuse and that trauma um, and really the consequences of her behaviors in my life. Um, but at the age of about, I think it was my late twenties, early thirties, I got connected to a home church through a, a friend of mine at school. I was teaching at the time. And, um, and so she invited me to uh, a Friday night home church and, um, and that's where I, I had already started some counseling by then, but it wasn't really doing much, Gary. It wasn't until I got to that home church that, um, that other women came alongside of me. And it was, it was kind of just a little bit of kind of what, what my grandmother was, like that taste of Jesus in her. But now I got all of this, mm. all of this other dose of it through all of these other women you know, meeting me where I was at in my pain and my suffering, and I could share just what all the the sexual brokenness, the consequences of that in my life, and the sin that I entered in because of it. Yes. So, um, so that's really where God, you know, uh, you know, met me, and um, and He really began to do a deep work uh, in me, 
And, um, and so that, that lasted quite a few years spending time with them. And it was through them that I was connected, uh, to you and Melissa. And, um, and that's mm-hmm. where, uh, I was able to, um, to really start talking about part of, of the shame that came along with, uh, with all of the sexual abuse, because part of the sexual abuse was my mom actually sexually abusing me. And so there was a lot of shame mm-hmm. around of how I was seeing women and how I was relating to women. And, um, and I didn't understand why I was doing, why I was feeling, you know, certain things. Um, right. And so, uh, so Melissa and, and you were able to really meet me in that place of, of deep despair where um, all I wanted was really just to go to sleep and never wake up. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. No, thank you, Becky, for sharing uh, your story. I know with the, the statistics that are out there that one in four girls by the time she reaches the age of 18 will have been sexually abused and um you know at least once if not is in your case you know many and multiple times and and that you know there's some numbers out there that would say one in six boys mm-hmm. will uh experience the same thing by the time that he reaches the age of 18 and so the the reality is that sexual abuse has always been an issue mm-hmm. uh, the sexual abuse of children has always been an issue and it certainly is a dominant issue when you look at that as as being um you know around 25% of the female population around you know what 18 20% or so of of boys that 15 to 20% of boys or so are experiencing or will experience abuse i mean we need as the church we need as a christian community to be sensitive to the reality that that this has been a part of people's experience. And I believe that, um, I'd love for you to comment on this, but I believe that most men and most women who have experienced these issues in childhood are still dealing with the fallout and the trauma. Um, Many of them probably never really having in any way dealt with it, or I mean, like in a clinical sense with counseling and those kinds of things, most not dealing with it there, but even a good number that have been, you know, kind of went for a period or season for for counseling, maybe even really good counseling. uh, There's so many layers of damage and destruction that's done uh, through sexual abuse that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an unfolding, um, process of, of healing and restoration. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, sexual abuse really strips, um, the individual away from, from their identity, who they are, but it also yes. strips you away from, uh, well, in, in my case is it stripped away the, the, the God's intention for family. Like it, like I didn't mm-hmm. experience what it was to to be protected by a father, to be to be loved by a mother, and so um, it it there's just so many different also aspects of of what you lose when you are um, you know sexually abused, um, and so yes. so it's it's you know then then there's this this the search of of deeper healing. Um, but somehow, I think sometimes people are looking for a deeper heal- healing for themselves. And of course, that's absolutely necessary. And especially in a clinical setting with a counselor, absolutely necessary. But, but that work actually gets played out even more when you are in a community with others that can walk alongside yes. of you. So, um, so yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. What would what would you say about? Um, well, let me back up just a moment. You mentioned in your testimony about sexual abuse and other forms of abuse, and and you mentioned being trafficked. And I so it, it, um, with with your mom, I know just from knowing you and hearing your story. And by the way, your long form story probably 
40 to 45 minutes, just like mine and my wife's my wife, Melissa and, and Jeremiah, we've done long form testimonies that are on our website for people that want to hear more. And, and, you know, for some, they really, they need that longer story and, and they're, maybe they're not in a place where they can get a lot of support, maybe feel a little bit more secluded or whatever. And they're looking for people that uh, have a story of God's redemption in their life that they can really connect with. So that's why we've done the longer form stories. We've also shortened them and edited them down uh, for those that would rather, you know, are more interested in kind of a 10 minute thing. But um, so your, your story is on our website and it goes into more detail. But the 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 reality of being um, trafficked was part of that, or maybe the majority of it. You can comment on that. Mm -hmm. It came about as your mom was um, basically selling you for drug money or drugs or for rent money or that kind of thing mm -hmm. to to men. And 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 um, is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, once I realized what it was, you know, I I thought, I I mean, I was. Yeah, when someone, and I don't remember who it was, Gary, that put that language to what was happening, mm. I was just like, wow. I, I, but yeah, um, you know, she had such a hard time keeping a job. And, um, and so we would move and move into different, different places. And, um, and so she, yeah, she had a, um, a boyfriend who was, uh, a drug dealer and um mm -hmm. and so basically he was kind of the the one that um that would give her you know drugs in exchange for allowing him to um mm -hmm. to rape me and um and to allow others to come in as well <sighs> um and so, yeah, so hard, Becky. Yeah. Yeah. And in one of the um, homes that we were living at, it was, um, it was, a uh, it was attached to the main home. And so, um, again, she didn't have a job and, but the, the, the husband that lived in the main house, um, she, she knew, she knew how she was, how we were going to be able to stay there. So basically he would come over and um and rape me and um and sometimes mm -hmm. she was involved in that as well um so it's just this 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 just horrific yeah. just mess um of of just yeah just people trying to meet their needs in such broken broken ways and um and I was I was in the midst of it and so that yeah that just yeah and my mom just kind of saw me as you know someone that i don't i mean i really didn't really necessarily feel like a human it was more like something that mm -hmm. she owned that she could hand out if it was necessary or if it somehow it was to her benefit right it, things were always yeah. to her benefit um but gary i i i try to be empathetic and compassionate thinking about my mom and that's not excusing or minimizing what happened mm -hmm. but also trying to all sometimes as as i've healed more to try to kind of see a little bit into um her brokenness but mm -hmm. yeah it's just yeah just horrible just horrible horrible yep. stuff yeah well, and you mentioned also like living with your grandmother for a while, you and your sister. And, um, but that, if I recall correctly, that, that was a reprieve, but it wasn't stable in that your mom, when she would get back on her feet, she'd come back and get you again. And, and you're back to living in that same situation. Mm -hmm. And so there, there wasn't, um, it, it was, a, it was a sense, a place of safety, but it, but it didn't last for very long each time, I don't think, did it? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Okay. Um, yeah, she, again, it's like this, she had a job, she didn't have a job, she couldn't, we couldn't keep whatever house, I mean, we were homeless, you know, most of the time, if it wasn't for grandma taking us in, I don't, I don't mm. know where, I don't know where we would have been at, but. Right. But yeah, right. we would come and. Absolutely. When we were at grandma's house, we knew, my sister and I, we knew that we had a place to sleep. We knew we were going to have food to eat. And we knew that my grandma 
just because grandma knew what was going on, you know, but again, in in our family, a lot of secrecy, nobody's going to say anything. Um, And so she, I felt seen and I felt cared for by my grandmother. But as soon as my mom was quote unquote back on her feet, um, she would come and she would just be, I mean, so angry at my grandmother that telling her that, um, that she wanted to um, keep us and that she wanted to um, like have, in a sense, ownership over us. Right. Uh, but it's you yeah. know, like, uh, yeah, yeah <clears throat> you know, so anyway, there was always this huge She's trying fight. to protect you. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah. but basically there was always yeah. this huge fight and then we were back out with my mom living in some of the worst places in the Valley that just were never, they were mm-hmm. never safe, never safe. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, as, as life progressed for you and, uh, I mean, I, I just think it's amazing that with, with all of this trauma that happened, it, you went on and you, you got your master's degree in teaching. Uh, it's at some point after that, you actually went on and, and went to school for, um, uh, culinary arts. I don't know if it what is, what was the technical, uh, word for what you were, what you did there. So I went to the Le Cordon Bleu and I just got, I got a certificate as a pastry chef. So I did that as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and uh, so I, what was it like, um, were, were, what was it like in the process of, of kind of deciding to, uh, to go on and get a degree? Did that, uh, to, to college, was that something that, that might've been new for your family, uh, for someone to do that? Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but, uh, was it, was it kind of a scary, a scary thing or were you excited and looking forward uh, to, to, you know, some, some time years in higher education. Yeah, no, I, um, earlier when I mentioned that I had no idea who I was, that I was always looking to others Mm -hmm. to tell me. And in, in terms of education, that was my sister. So my sister's two years older than I am. And, um, and I looked up to her my, my whole life um, and so she, mm-hmm. I, I just, I just followed whatever she did. And so she decided she was going to go to ASU after high school. Um, you know, uh, um, she went into education. And so basically like I have, I mean, I, now looking back, I believe the Lord had, I mean, he had a hand on that. Like I, I really do believe that mm-hmm. there was some giftings in me that he, that he used powerfully in the education field. Um, uh, but I was just kind of, I had no idea about life. I had no idea what I'm doing, where I'm going. And so mm-hmm. I'm just going to kind of follow um, Norma, my sister, and um, and see kind of where, where that takes me. Um, and so I, and in terms of, uh, and so that was undergrad. And that was really challenging in, in, in college just because that's when I was dealing a lot with um, my sexuality and and really just the consequences of um, of everything that had happened as a child, like all of this, you know, body memories were happening, and and I'm I'm fearful, mm. and I want to die, and so all of this is going on. But meanwhile, you know, like somehow I was able to get through it. Somehow I was able yeah. to to just to just um, push through. And I, that's one of the biggest things I feel like the Lord has, has that's come out of so much trauma is just this ability to, to lean into the hard things and just kind of keep going. Now there can be something unhealthy about that as well. Right. But sure. But this is more about things that have actually led to the more that God had for me. So so yeah, and mm-hmm. and the masters um, in education, um, that was my one of the other lies that I have in my in my life, Gary, is that I'm stupid, right? And so somehow, if mm-hmm. I have more education, if I have more education, if I have more education, um, somehow that lie is just kind of going to go away. And so here's my attempt to sure. tell myself, "Well, no, you're not," but it it never worked. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Well, and that is, I mean, there's so many um, bunny trails we could take off of what you've shared and uh, that are, that I think are so important. And again, thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us and to, and to dialogue about that for our podcast and, and other things as well, obviously. But one of the things that I think of there is what you're describing is an excellent uh, example of how uh, our past when it's unhealed, Mm -hmm. it um, can motivate us to do all kinds of things that um, that now in this case, it's you going on and getting further education seems like a very good thing. And in, and in many ways, it is mm-hmm. a good thing. But yet there's also an underlying um, uh, drive that sometimes that underlying drive in, in something like, like you're describing could be an underlying drive for perfection. Mm-hmm. It could be an underlying drive that like it's, it's not good enough that I, that I have good grades. I have to have excellent grades. And if I don't have excellent grades, I feel like I'm, I'm absolutely crushed in, in what's driving that. Uh, is is that sense that, like you said, that 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 feeling that I'm stupid and somehow I have to prove that I'm not, or maybe to myself I need to prove that. And so if I'm not getting top grades all the time, if I'm not at a 4.0, then I feel like a failure, even though I'm doing so incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And and I think the reason I bring this out is because for our listeners or those uh, who are watching there's there's obviously people in their lives just like there's people in in your life and my life and and and, and things that we ourselves still deal with and struggle with that the lord's bringing us through that just that example alone can show how our past experiences whether it's full on trauma whether it's experiences of rejection or labels that were hung around our neck by other people that we took on ourselves like i'm stupid or like i'm uh, for me it was um, I'm unwanted and I'm unlovable. Uh, you know, and there could be any number of gobs of of examples of that in, in people's lives. But we tend to operate out of and live our lives out of that space mm-hmm. of um, uh, of trying to overcome or trying to soothe those areas of brokenness or fill in the void. Like the void is so the emptiness is so painful that I I have to just reach and grasp for, for something mm-hmm. um that's going to fill that. And and so I mean, yeah, can you can you speak to that maybe a little bit more about how our um our trauma or difficulties in in our past experiences when they're unhealed, they can either drive us toward obvious areas of brokenness and addiction or they could drive us to things that we might get a lot of accolades and and praise for, mm-hmm. and yet the underlying motive could be something that's actually unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, as I think about um, exactly what you're saying, Gary, I just think about. Um, uh, I mean, I've been I've been in therapy, and as I'm an, an intern as well, I go to Phoenix Seminary. I've been working with. Uh, internal family systems model a little bit more and just the idea that we have all of these what what they would call as exiles or these trauma parts of who we are right we have all these younger parts um, some maybe not so young but we have all of these parts within us that are holding in all of the trauma that are holding in all of the emotion mm-hmm. and the pain and, and instead of dealing with that, which is very understandable why we wouldn't want to, right? But in choosing mm-hmm. not to enter into that, then we develop all of these other protectors in a sense, right? And for me, you said earlier, um, is perfectionism. Like I will try to do everything as perfect as I can so that I'm seen in a certain way, right? And I'm somehow wanted and and all of that to just kind of keep calm that other younger part of me that is hurting and that and that needs to be seen and needs to share the the impact of what happened to her and so it could be perfectionism it can be um you know this this internal critic you know the one for me you're stupid what's wrong with you um it could be um mm-hmm. addictions like overeating or pornography um, or um, some eating disorders also as well. Um, so there can be different parts of us that are driving us 
to do what looks like on the outside good things, but at the end, they're Mm -hmm. actually preventing us from dealing with what we need to deal with internally to become integrated and whole and be able to live out of our true self, right? Who God has designed and created us to be. Um, And so Mm -hmm. there's other parts like the people pleaser or being self-sufficient, like I don't need your help, stay away from me. What the hell is wrong with you? Do you not think I can do it? You know, Mm -hmm. so you have all of these other parts that, like you're saying, seem like they're doing something good. And at the end of the day, their intention is good because their intention is to actually keep you you know, what, what, what you would think as calm, but really they're just trying to mask what's, what's trying to come to the surface. And so, um, yeah, when, when our internal system is off, then we have those addictions that kind of come in and put out the fire. And so we're numbing, we're zoning out, we're dissociating, um, all of that. And so, um, really the way that we integrate the system is by actually dealing with the root causes of what's what's coming up for us. Um, and that's that's done, yes, one-on-one with a counselor, but even more importantly, in a community with others that can walk alongside of you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that point. The um and and, and I just want to share here too that that somebody who has been sexually abused and not this isn't true just for those that have been sexually abused but certainly one of the outcomes and it can be this wide swing it can be uh, a complete like embrace of asexuality like i want nothing i don't feel anything sexual i don't want to be with anybody i never want to be with anybody and that isn't um you know unfortunately that's now being labeled as an identity uh, but uh, that's not an identity that's actually if it if it stems from sexual abuse then uh, or other kinds of abuse then that's actually something that the lord would want to heal you know would want to bring um wholeness to and so the response to trauma abuse can can be a wide range of like detachment shutting down um wanting nothing to do with that area of life ever or for some it turns into promiscuity mm-hmm. for some it actually becomes it's like this this um unconscious uh repetition of trying to resolve yes. the the trauma from uh that happened or the and trauma being abuse obviously is is trauma always or it could be a series of of bad relationships mm-hmm. that were i mean and that could be trauma too but a series of bad relationships where a person just doesn't feel a woman or a man a uh, boy just doesn't feel like they're worthy of love that that the the people that they are drawn to and would love to 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 love and and have that reciprocated uh, aren't interested in them they're interested in people that look differently look a certain way act a certain way whatever have certain things and and so the um the the wide range of how we can respond to brokenness in our past can definitely be in those areas of addiction though. So mm-hmm. for I'm saying all this to say that it's that, that it's important that the church understands, that Christian leaders understand that so much of what feeds into um uh sexual sin, pornography addiction, promiscuity, uh I think also, you know, dealing there's other things we could talk about with regard to same-sex attraction and things like that 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 where there are some nuance around that that's a little bit different but there's so much that's similar in that arena too to just what everybody else is dealing with but how promiscuity we need to understand isn't just a choice to embrace sexual sin of course there's a choice involved in it i'm not minimizing that there's sin involved in it absolutely not minimizing that but the but the, but the bigger question and you've talked about this a couple of times is the reality that we need to get underneath of the symptom mm-hmm. And don't ignore the symptom, but we need to get underneath the symptom, you know, a number of layers down, probably levels down to really address the ache and the emptiness and the, um, the, the past experiences and what the belief systems that we've believed about ourselves, Mm -hmm. I'm stupid, I'm unlovable, whatever we believed about ourselves because of those bad experiences and what we've come to believe about God about his, like, he doesn't love me either. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's rejected me too. You know, those things that we believe to be true that aren't true, and also our view of others. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much that plays into 
um, why we're acting out in sexually compulsive ways or compulsive sinful ways that's so much deeper than just the actual um, uh, circumstance or the behavior. And I think we as Christians really do ourselves and others a great disservice when we're not willing to go to those deeper um, levels with people. Yes, yes. So. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the things I also wonder about with your um, getting your uh, your degree, your master's degree in teaching, and then moving into that space. I think you were you were teaching for sixteen years or so. Mm-hmm. And um, I, another thing that that people listening to us, watching us, or or people they may know, is the reality that that we can we can function oftentimes pretty well in a public setting, even when there's great trauma going on. And I remember years and years ago, somebody talking about being a high-functioning person at work and and well-loved and, and, and people just assuming they had it all together and they would literally could not wait to get out of the car and into their house and they would shut the door and they would put their back against the door and they would just slide down the door into a heap and just sob every day mm-hmm. uh, because they, they it took everything they had just to get through the day to keep up that image. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, obviously all of this stuff is in your life while you're teaching, there was so much of it that was yet unhealed and unaddressed, wouldn't would even know necessarily, what do I do with this? I mean, the only thing that many of us do know is, well, you just you just kind of move on. So you just sort of stuff it, put the lid on it as best you can and just move on with life. But it, but ultimately it leaks out, you know, all over the place at some point, the longer that we do that. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think that, that people kind of had that same experience with you in, in this professional setting where they just assumed, Oh, Becky has just got it all together and has no issues. And I mean, what are your thoughts about that perception people might've had? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like women in our, in our family, Gary, um, it's, it's, it's all really about appearance, right? The, the way that on the outside that you look. And so I grew up and I learned very quickly what it was like and what I needed to do to look quote unquote perfect on the outside. And so I'm Mm. teaching, I, you know, I mean, from the outside and people would tell me, you look so put together. You look so put together. And I, and you know, internally I'm thinking if you only knew the mess that's inside of me. Right. But mm. I knew how to keep up, um, in a sense, you know, like living waters calls it the false self. Like I knew how to, um, keep that, that up. Um, and, um, and that, and, and I was, I was functionally functioning, um, as best I could at work. But all my energy, just like you described with this other individual, all my energy went into presenting in that way, you know, day after day, day after day. And mm-hmm. um, and I went far and beyond also in the teaching field, like I was a workaholic as well. So I'm there at six, wouldn't leave till seven o'clock in the in the evening, go home and only have like a few hours to, to eat dinner and then go to bed to do it all over again the next day. Um, and so that was just mm. another way to to keep from feeling what was coming up. Um, so, so yeah, it was uh, it was draining. Uh, it was exhausting. Um, and if there was a day where I didn't want to present in that way, like it wasn't a choice. And so there's this internal part of me that's just like, no, you don't have a choice. You actually you have to do that because that's the way you're presenting and what are other people going to think about you, right? So when we talk about shame, Mm. it's like, what is wrong with me? And so the shame was just so heavy that it's like, I can't let people know that, that there's something in turn, like there's something wrong with me. And so I'm going to do everything in my power uh, to make sure that people don't, don't find out. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's, yeah, very, very draining. And at the same time, um, that, that, that same presentation was driven or was fueled more by others saying to me, Oh, you look like you're all put together. Right. Or the principal giving me a review saying you are doing an amazing job. 
I can't find not one thing that I can give you feedback on or constructive feedback on. And so mm-hmm. that, again, kind of would fuel that that part of me that that wanted to be seen and loved, you know, and so it was just enough to then keep keep with all the false, you know, self, yeah. right? And so it's this ongoing kind of cycle of just getting a little bit of a trickle of of what I would say what I was looking for in terms of love or being seen, um, just to keep that part of me, um, just pushing, pushing, pushing. Uh, and yet I have this other, you know, part of me, like, you know, when's the day that we're going to die? Like, how can we get in the car and run into that, that wall and, and total our car and enough for the airbag to come out, deploy in this, you know, piece of glass to come. I mean, it was like, I, you know, like I have all of these, you know, two parts internally going on. Mm -hmm. Well, and when you're, as you're talking, the, the thing that strikes me is, I mean, how difficult under that kind of pressure must it have been to even like you can't even have a bad day mm-hmm. i mean and invariably of course we all have bad days and there's times that you just can't even cover that up i understand but but the but the the drive to even when you're exhausted even when you feel like you've hit the bottom and you can't face another day being under that drive of perfection and that drive of image management and that drive to gain appreciation and value by always being on and performing to, at your at your peak um then the drive then to not allow there to be a bad day i mean you don't you don't you can't even give yourself a break for a day right i mean what are your thoughts about that oh yeah yeah i exactly and because of that obviously we know that that's not realistic and it's not manageable and our bodies can't actually handle that and so yeah. um, I remember that it was, you know, I would work through the summer, so I wouldn't even take the summers off. Um, and then I start up mm-hmm. the school year once again in September. And it was like late September or so that I, I like my body would just completely shut down. And so I'm crying, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal. Um, I'm, you know, being admitted into the hospital um, what's wrong, like what's wrong with her and what does she need? What do we, you know? And so I, I've, there was this pattern, ongoing pattern year after year where, um, where my body just had to give out in order to, for me to give myself Mm. permission to rest. Right. Even though that wasn't really rest, but, but my body actually had to take me to a place where it just could not do it any longer. And I would crash and um, I would be out for like two weeks without being able to function. Uh, but then mm-hmm. I was back. I was back in the classroom and I was back in that same pattern. And it was going to, I mean, just year after year after year after year, just doing the same thing over and over yeah. again. Yeah. Well, and it strikes me too that for those who deal with perfectionism or kind of earning the right to be loved or acknowledged or seen or any of that, the, again, is a response to the, the, what we did not get that God designed for every child to need, uh, in, in legitimate ways that pouring in that affirmation, that love and affection and, and a sense of, of being delightful and desired and, and cared for all those things. But the, um, I guess for, uh, for someone in that situation, the one you don't want to break down in any area, but if you're going to break down in some area, l- let it be the body. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, let it be something that you can at least say, "Oh, that's a physical thing." Mm-hmm. Like it's not about it, it's not about my emotional state. God forbid anybody think there's an issue there, right? So the body, and you're you're right in saying, eventually, the body tells on us. Eventually, uh, the body does break down, and it's and it really is not. It's not healthy, but it's it's kind of this 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 last ditch effort mm-hmm. it's the eject button in a sense for your body to say look w- you have got to stop and and so the body gives out but then it's something we can point to and others can maybe assume oh there's something going on with them physically but it's still a cover for what's going on with us emotionally or spiritually mm-hmm. or internally yeah 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 and um and the hard part when i would go to the hospital though is um they can never find anything 
physically wrong with me, right? And so the, at the end of, mm-hmm. of of being of going, it was like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and so that was mm-hmm. just a, a a hard piece, scare because exactly what you're saying. If it was, if they would have given me some kind of physical diagnosis, then I can kind of go to people and be like, oh yeah, well, it's it's whatever it is, right? Um, but yep. instead, I would I would leave with this. Not there's nothing really other than um, you're making this up is really the message that mm. I got. So I think also for for maybe listeners that that have had that experience where their bodies um, are either uh, there's a there's a book why the body keeps the score that whether your body's kind of actually mm-hmm. telling you like there's something something going on and and you're going to doctor's visits and and you're getting the well there's nothing wrong with you right and and then you end up with this um this negative uh belief or cognition that somehow you know you're lying that what you're saying is not true what you're feeling is not true and that you're just kind of making it up like that's mm-hmm. that's one huge thing i out there i think in mental health to really be cautious to to know that when we are dealing with emotional stuff like that gets worked out in our bodies and um and that there like there is something going on like it's not just a, mm-hmm. a make believe thing it's not just like it, it's it's true like it it really is the way that our bodies are trying to work out and express um, just all of the the trauma from childhood, whether it's big traumas or, or little traumas that have accumulated into big traumas, right? So, um, so I don't know. That just mm-hmm. that's I think yeah. that kind of came out of nowhere, but I feel like that that's very very common too, and uh, with mental yeah. health stuff, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's you know, and and even in the church, I feel like the church is is moving in a positive direction with regard to mental health. I think there's a long way to go, but I I know that there are some churches that are now addressing that issue in a very intentional kind of way and not, uh, I I think we make a a huge mistake. And as someone who grew up in the church myself, got off into the weeds and rebellion for years and all that. But, um, But as someone who grew up in the church, the, you know, everything was really, all, all like sin issues and struggles or those kinds of things that were always considered just spiritual issues mm-hmm. purely. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, you know, you're, you're saying yes to Satan or you're saying yes to your flesh and you just need to say yes to God, say yes to the new man in Christ or the new woman in Christ or a woman. And, and, you know, it's going to be all better. And, and there is a role, obviously a huge role of obedience, mm-hmm. uh, clearly in scripture, but the idea that that it's only a spiritual issue, that there's not so many other things. I mean, we're spirit, soul, and body. And the reality that uh, those interplay and are interwoven in ways that cannot be separated, our mm-hmm. uh, spiritual issues and struggles are not just spiritual. They are that. They aren't just sin areas. Mm-hmm. They are that. But they're, they're so much more going on than that. You know, one of the things that you also brought up was your your uh, tendency not not just tendency but really the the active way you uh, were a workaholic and you know I think that so many people who are uh, have experienced childhood trauma or or even uh, you know chronic neglect mm-hmm. is oftentimes not looked at as as a childhood trauma it wasn't something that was done to somebody it was it was all the things that they should have gotten that were withheld from them essentially and and so in many ways it's very difficult to even put your finger on like what was wrong mm-hmm. with that i didn't i didn't have there wasn't abuse or or maybe there were times of that but more than anything it was that sense of just being on my own and and not being uh, loved or cherished or that important. Maybe I had food to eat, clothes on my back, a roof over my head, but that was the ex- the, the extent of the quote unquote love that was shown. And and so whatever the issue is, uh, whether people are trying to outrun that sense of uh, of not being loved or lovable because of the neglect, whether it was the the outright trauma of sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional, verbal, uh, other things, uh, rejection, whatever. Um, but so often workaholism winds up being an, uh, a way in which people, you know, quote unquote, manage mm-hmm. not well, but manage, uh, the pain that they're still carrying. 
And, and I think it's interesting. I'm, I wanted to bring this up for people that are listening or watching that, you know, it, in many ways, it's very understandable that somebody who is a workaholic will actually really um, can respond in in a very angry kind of way when that's pointed out to them, or maybe their wife or their husband or their another loved one is talking about the hours they're putting in and and the um, the, the the demonstration of workaholism that that they're exhibiting, because for them they they might they may not even see that as really being a big deal or an issue, but it's it's been the way that they've been able to stay ahead of or on top of these emotions or the pain or the emptiness that that they've they've been just been trying to outrun for you know years or decades sometimes. I mean, what do you what are your thoughts about the way workaholics um, can be blinded to the need they have to actually slow down, but more than just slow down, uh, get with some counselors, get with uh, some other brothers or sisters in Christ who can be made aware of this challenge and really walk with them in this season of learning to get healed up from the things that are driving the workaholism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely consider, you know, as we were kind of talking about different ways we quote unquote protect ourselves, you know, workaholism is, is one of those, right. As you explained, Gary, um, it's a way of, of numbing. It's a way of, of checking out and, and in a way, kind of, of disassociating from the reality of what's going on internally, right? How can I, in a sense, separate myself from from my body um, so that I'm not I'm not feeling what what actually is coming up, right? And um, mm-hmm. and so it's it's having a, a willingness. That when people around us that are that that love us and are saying, "Hey, like here's something that I'm noticing, and I'm just wondering, right? Just being curious mm-hmm. about why we do what we do. Um, I mean, we've already had plenty of 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 negativity, plenty of of um, kind of just you know being." Um, uh, Maybe just being critical about who we are and why we don't get this mm-hmm. done or that done, right? But we've had plenty of that, and and you think about, okay, well, I've tried to deal with it this way, and and I know you and Melissa, you know, ask this question a lot. How's that working out for you, right? And you say, well, mm-hmm. it's not, right? And so, how can we kind of shift that in a way of? of looking at why I'm choosing to spend hours and, and, and days and most of my life working, right? Why am I doing that? And, and there's actually people on the outside kind of being curious with me about, you know, is this really helpful, right, to live the life that God intended uh, for that individual to live, right? And so... Mm-hmm. For me, it was having a willingness to to kind of lean in um, a little bit into what what was coming up for me, which meant I needed to slow down just just enough to to start feeling like, yeah, there's stuff there. Um, and now others are actually coming alongside of me where I don't feel that I am alone in this battle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that it was easy, Gary. I mean, I was in the teaching field 16 mm-hmm. years, you know, and so it, yep. it would, yeah, that workaholism was really, um, in a sense, it, se- it seemed like I had control over things, right? Like somehow the the, wor- the workaholism was was um, was giving me control, and yet really it had control over me, and I wasn't headed in the right direction at all. So, um, so again, it was kind yeah. of that willingness on my part to to kind of step outside of that and um, and uh, and start really looking internally. And really, as I shared earlier, my body just kind of started shutting down. So in a way, like there there really is no no other other choice, right? Um, than to actually actually have to stop, but but getting to that point is it's just not it's not helpful. It's not healthy, um, and so that's one thing with 
with my story. There's a lot of parts of it and I'm very shameful of, and, um, but, but I just, you know, I don't know how I would want, um, to be able just to tell individuals out there in the audience that have deep, deep trauma that doing the work, Gary, like doing the work is mm-hmm. actually where, uh, where the freedom comes in and, and that it's scary yeah. and that it's hard. It's so hard. Um, but, but, but it is so worth doing the hard work, not alone, but with others. Right. And so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the message really that, um, that I have for, for others is that, you know, entering into the work, I, I wish Gary that I would have, um, and I'm thankful to the Lord for what he's done at this timing. His timing is perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. but that, that he would have gotten, that I would have been more willing much earlier on in my life and how Mm -hmm. my life, the trajectory of my life would have been shifted in such a way that, um, that things that I struggled, you know, later in life potentially might have not been there at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I work with, with teens, um, and I, quite frankly, um, going into the counseling field, the last, population I wanted to work with were teens, right? And yet, yep. you know, when when there's teens coming in with trauma, the Lord's just kind of like, you know, Becky, like the trajectory of their lives can change, right? When you help mm-hmm. them uh, be able to deal with the underlining things, but also be able to bring me into this place of healing for them. I mean, it's just like, to me, it's amazing to be able to think about people that young, right. To, to have a shift in life. But the other piece to that is that they have parents and the parents also uh, have to be on board with, with helping the teen. And I totally got off on a tangent, but, um, no, no, no. I, I love that. I love that. There's something you said a little bit earlier. I think all of that has value. Something you said a little bit earlier, and I thought, oh, this is a great way to wrap up this week's podcast. And and there's a lot more I want to talk with you about, and we can do that next week. But you talked about the um, the theme or the idea of needing to slow down. And so I thought that is, I, I'd love to take that into kind of launching and starting off uh, the ne- next week's podcast. But before we wrap up this one, as we were talking about workaholism, I think it's important to point out as well that there are so many ways that we can respond to the the pain, the emptiness, whatever, uh, inside of us, the trauma from childhood or whatever. We can respond in ways that are addictive in terms of um, negative uh, kinds of behaviors or, or commonly understood, you know, whether that's uh, a pornography addiction or it's uh, some something, some other sexual addiction or an eating uh, disorder or issue or a number. But my point is, is that there are those things that we can get involved in that we don't want anyone to know about. Mm-hmm. And there, there are areas that we feel ashamed about. We don't, um, we're fearful of others knowing about. That is oftentimes what's thought of as addiction. But the reality is there's also the those addictions, those those ways of coping, and we're talking about workaholism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned perfectionism. Mm-hmm. So those things are actually things we want to uh, keep dusted and shiny mm-hmm. and put up on our mantle mm-hmm. for everyone to see because we're, a workaholic is not – um, it, you know, most bosses, unless they're a really good boss, uh, and they recognize the need for um holistic care of the whole person, uh, they're not coming and saying, "Hey, you know, Bob or Jenny or Becky or whatever, you you've been putting in a lot of hours this week or n- last week. We we we're in a busy season. I know that right now, but man, when this season's over, I want you to take some extra time. I mean, I want you to to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your family. Well, that almost never happens. What tends to happen is we're just constantly in go, 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 go Mm -hmm. mode. And, and again, um, uh, trying to mitigate whatever the stuff is inside of us that's never been dealt with or ever um, healing is ever brought to. The same thing would be true again of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So, so there's many things that we, we would in, in one sense like to get rid of, 
Um, but, but those things we want to get rid of the porn or whatever the case is, um, those things are, they're, they're still meeting a need. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're still somehow filling in the gap. They're still, that's why we keep going back Mm -hmm. to them. They're ultimately leading to destruction, but in the moment they, they meet a need of some kind, but we don't want people to know about them. But when it comes to perfectionism and workaholism, there's an idol there mm. that um, in addition to the to the broken way of working out our pain or emptiness, there's an idol there. And many people really feel strongly about defending that idol because it's it's like, you're, you want me to give this up? Like, this is where all of my affirmations <laughs> coming from, you know, I mean, and they may not verbalize it that way, but it's more of an internal gut reaction or sense. And so I think it's important that we recognize not all addictions are the negative things we don't want anybody to know about. Some of them are those things that drive us. And in a sense, they have even more power because they positively reinforce us um, and and give us a good sense, a good feeling about ourselves. Uh, Any last um, thoughts on that before we wrap up this uh, particular podcast? Um. No, I mean, I agree, uh, Gary, that in, in some ways there's parts of us that, um, that are driving our lives that look good on the outside, right? And you, you mentioned that earlier, that, mm-hmm. that it's acceptable, um, that, you know, working late hours, benefiting, whether it's the school system, the, the business, whatever it is, it's, it's on the outside, it seems good, right? But at the end of the day, when you really step back and look, um, is it really leading the person to a place of of being whole enough, right? And so it's um it's just really yeah, just kind of stepping back and seeing how is is whatever it is, perfectionism or workaholism, um, how how is that working mm-hmm. out for the individual in their life, and not just for them. Right. But for others that are around them, and if there isn't others around them, then that's an indication as well. So, um, so no, I mean, yeah, that's, that's really all I have. And I think even, even things like, um, uh, keeping up with the Joneses in a sense, you know, having the, having the, the manicured perfect house everything's impeccable when you come into the home and, and there's, and it's, it's almost like, People don't even live here. This is more mm-hmm. like a model house that we're, you know, it, it doesn't even, it, it, it's, it takes so much work mm-hmm. to be able to actually invite somebody over, um, into a home where you feel comfortable having them that it's exhausting, first of all, to even do an event mm-hmm. or, or have people over. And then it, it also models. A, um, it models for everybody else coming this sense that this is what your house has to look mm-hmm. like if you're going to be doing this too. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it perpetuates this really, in one sense, it's, there's an admiration or this sense of, oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. But yet it's, it, in many ways, it's a bit fake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the way people live their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I'm not saying we shouldn't pick up or, you know, clean or whatever when we have people over, but I think we can just go overboard right. in that going overboard tends to connect with a lot of the brokenness. I think of somebody else that both you and I uh, have known that, um, that's, that's, uh, addicted to shopping mm-hmm. and addicted to buying clothes mm-hmm. and, and things that, that would, that they can, they can wear that, um, they look beautiful and they look wonderful in, but it's, it's something that is driven by, you know, when, when you really spend time kind of talking about it, it's something that's driven by the very things we're talking about that, that those unhealed areas of woundedness and, and that I, I need to present on the outside in a way that draws, uh, attention and, and draws a sense of, um, you know that that they're beautiful and they're mm-hmm. and and it, again, it, there's nothing wrong with wanting to mm-hmm. look good, but we can be so driven mm-hmm. by that brokenness on the inside that it becomes compulsive to to have a new outfit all the time uh, for everything to look perfect. And so again, we just want to say yes, our ministry, Love and Truth Network is about restoring relational and sexual wholeness and the church becoming equipped to really deal with those issues within the church. But the truth is there's so many ways that we tend to compensate and, and to, uh, and to try to 
resolve the pain and the emptiness that we're experiencing, it it's a plethora of issues. Mm-hmm. It's it's not usually just um, connected to relationships or sexuality, but those are those are big pieces. So anyway, I just want to kind of wrap up our time together. And Becky, I so appreciate you being with us today. I hope that you have been, who have been tuned in to us, friends that are listening to us or watching us have benefited from the conversation uh, with Becky that maybe there's something that she shared or I've shared that resonates with you personally. Hopefully that that would be true. We would love for that to be true. But also maybe there are people in your life that mm-hmm. you know uh, would connect with what we're talking about. We'll connect them to this podcast. Also, if you have pastors or Christian leaders in your life that you've not talked to about our ministry, we would love to have a conversation with them. We'd love for you to introduce us uh, to them. And if we can be a resource or a help or support to your church, to your Christian leaders in equipping them, walking with them in ways that in this culture, in this day are so vital in these areas of restoring relational and sexual wholeness, we would love to do that. That's the reason we Mm -hmm. exist. So bless you. Have a wonderful day. And we'll see you in a podcast in next week where we'll be joined with Becky once again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this Love and Truth Network podcast. To listen to or watch future episodes, please check us out at loveandtruthnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Also, you can subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you in a future episode. 